Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at the new Andy Samberg, Kristen Milanati? I'm not sure how to say her name. Anyway, the, the, the new Groundhog Day time travel Hulu comedy, Palm Springs. Uh, we're also going to look back at 2008's Dark Knight, because uh, it came to movie theaters again, and we couldn't resist going to the movie theater to watch it, which I kind of feel terrible about, but we'll talk about that. When we get there, it's mostly because of the pandemic. It's a really good film, I promise. Uh, we're going to talk about a new trailer that's out for a Netflix film starring Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Levitt called Project Power. It premiered earlier this afternoon, so we're excited to dig into what's going on in that movie. And before that, we need to get to the news. Our very first story this week. Movie theaters are facing an existential threat from COVID-19. Quote, without new movies, it's all over certainly a grim headline andy what do you uh what do you think about this so the big issue with reopening theaters is that it's it's a long and slow process uh you know right now uh in some some states the theaters are completely closed some states are partially opened uh like in texas you can have 50 percent. but the problem is for a new movie to come out it's got you got to have a hundred percent of your theaters a hundred percent open and that's not going to happen for a long time and so what's happening is that studios are just holding their films until that time comes or until they can they can make some some serious money and until then they're just going to hold them and that's fine for this the studios but the theaters don't have i mean what are they supposed to do in the meantime they're just bleeding cash and until that happens yeah, uh, this is this is a particularly interesting problem. We've talked about it on the show before, but if you haven't listened, obviously due to the coronavirus pandemic that's been sweeping the United States since March, movie theaters are struggling. And this article's got an interesting interesting statistic. Currently, about 1,300 domestic theaters are currently open, which includes about 293 drive-ins, according to a data firm called Comscore. But the other 5,500 movie theaters are closed, which, of course, is the majority and it's not great for the big three movie theater chains, AMC, Cinemark, and Regal. They are hurting, and of course they're large, and they're in charge, but they can't stay not open forever, and you're right, ultimately the problem is not only are people not feeling safe to come in, there's no good movies to run, there's nothing new, and even if you run something old, you probably gotta pay distribution rights, so, yeah, it's a problem. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's, it's very difficult, even with old, old films, they had a little bit of a spike initially, but you can, you can only show Jurassic Park so many times or Jaws so many times. Uh, you know, you really need new films to to bring in audiences, and even then, audiences when you have something new are still going to be more people will be willing to come out, but it's still going to be a slow, you know, thing to get uh, theaters completely full. Right. Uh, the person interviewed in this article said very bluntly, like. If the idea is we have to wait to put people in seats um, to make money, like that's probably not going to happen until there's a vaccine. And a vaccine probably isn't coming for what, another year? Like, I don't, I don't know what the estimates are, but I'd say yeah. safely 2021. Um, theaters aren't going to make it that long. They got to do something, which is why some are open. And obviously some people are going, including ourselves, going to see The Dark Knight. But it's not enough. Um, they got to get people in seats. If they go a year without new movies, they're in trouble. Like real, actual trouble. Um, you said uh, yesterday we were talking about this. You said you'd read something in passing about AMC 
renegotiating a deal, a buyout or yes. something? What was that yes, about? they they had at least, um, you know, found some new financing and sold off some debt or, you know, other financial stuffs that they are going to be able to hang on at least through 2021. So they got 18 months of, uh, of runway to... Um, you know, figure this thing out, which is, which is good for them. Like that is a long time. I hope in a year to 18 months, we're going to be past this, but in the short term, uh, you know, places like, uh, Cinemark and Regal and particularly small private, uh, theaters are going to have quite a time. You know, it's funny. Um, I was reading a great quote from an old Spielberg quote, Steven Spielberg, right? He was a movie theater enthusiast, of course. Uh, about what the future of movie theaters looks like to him. And he said way back when, when he was talking about this like a decade or so ago, that movie theaters are ultimately going to be an eccentric experience. They're probably not going to be in the long-term future a thing that people all go to. It'll be people who are like cinema purists. That was this thing, right? Like art house pictures who it's going to be expensive, but you really want to see stuff that's like really good, you know, and, and a lot of other basic stuff will get kicked to streaming services and TV. That's the idea that someday in, in Steven Spielberg's mind, movie theaters will be a big grandiose thing only for people who really appreciate cinema church of cinema as they yeah. say uh and it's funny because that's kind of where they are now they're running old classics and only certain <laughs> people are going and a lot of those people are maybe not uh going because they really appreciate the cinema maybe they just want to get out i understand that but for running like old classics i'm all about it i love old classics film is a timeless medium to me these things are time capsules of what they used to be um but I get it. Ultimately, they're they're, they're not going to make it without new right. movies. Right? They're they're in the business of new films, and they need blockbusters, and they need a lot of them. You know, there is an argument that you know if you release something like Tenet, well, it's not going to have any competition, so it's going to make all the money, and that might be slightly true. But part of, of what you need is variety. That's part of what what made Alamo do so well was their variety of films, and that's so we don't just need new films; we need a lot of new films and a lot of different kinds of new films. Right, and you need you need distributors and studios to kind of band together here and all move forward together because they can't do this piecemeal thing. And the idea is we need one big movie to break out and say, hey, this is the flag in the sand, movie theaters are opening again, and then other distributors will hopefully follow, right? So if Warner Brothers, or uh, yeah, Warner Brothers publishes Tenant in theaters, hopefully... Other other movies, all the other movies will jump on board too and say, "Okay, well, hold on. If you're going to be drawing seats, we're going to draw seats, and everybody's going to come back on board together. They got to team up. It's the only way. A rising tide raises all ships." Um, the question is, can movie theaters make it that long? I think they can. And the reason I'm, I'm hopeful about this is because you're right. There's light at the end of the rainbow. Whenever movie theaters do open again, there is a huge backlog of content. If if movie theaters are open in November, if we're there. The release schedule is going to be insane. I don't know how our little podcast is going to keep up with it. We're going to start watching three theatricals a week or something. It's nuts how many movies are going to be coming out. They just got to get there. And that looks great for investors. So hopefully they can renegotiate like AMC and make it work, right? Yeah, I, I do think that chains, especially even some of the big ones, are are a good buy. And even if even if someone goes bankrupt, someone else will buy that. It's like someone else will seize the opportunity to buy a theater chain, hold it until it's safe to go back and then, you know, make money that way. Yep. 
I, I think I think the exact same. Uh, unfortunately, a step backwards in that progress comes in our next story. Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom orders indoor service at all restaurants, bars, and movie theaters in California to close again with no end date given. <laughs> uh, you know, the restaurants and bars are bummer. Definitely bummed about the movie theaters, though, because that's where freaking Hollywood is, and that's where all the big theater theater releases happen. Right, and this is significant because for, again, our big movie, Tenet, to come out, we have to have L.A. and New York cinemas open, and if if they're completely closed right now, that's a really bad sign for them needing to be opened and hit their release date, which is August 12th so far. Yeah, it's it's not outstanding. There's no clear path for this to clear up at any point. There's no like set date of when things are going to be opening back up again. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in regards to Tenet because that's what they're that's the big movie that they've been slowly pushing back. The only way that movie is actually going to work is if like the larger regions open up. Specifically nationwide would be outstanding, but like LA and New York gotta be open. They have to be. Like that is that is where people are going to see the most films. Like those are the hot spots for film in the country. Um, if all of California is closed, there's no way that movie comes out in August, right? There's no way. I yeah, mean, that's true. That's how I, I feel. And I and I feel like if it doesn't if it doesn't come out in August, it, we're not going to see it until November, December. Yeah, if not next year, which is totally a bummer because I've seen so many trailers and like my mouth is watering for this stuff, especially after seeing the trailer in an IMAX theater again, uh, in front of dark Knight. it looks great. And I really want to see it. And the idea of putting it on a shelf for a year is awful, but it kind of is what it is here. Right. I mean, what, a yeah, what, I mean, what it, are they going to do? Like, I there's mean, no, there's no way they make enough money to, to clear the production costs uh, and and make a profit if they just dump it now. There's no way. Yeah, exactly. And I, th- I think you will have to have some films that are sacrificial lambs. I think just to have new things in the cinema, I think you're going to have to just put things in there because it's new and get people comfortable and take some losses. But it can't be Tenet. It can't be Mulan. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. It could be Mulan, it but it could be. be. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. It's it 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 should be some smaller stuff. Thing things like A Quiet Place too. Throw it on the fire. It's it's a horror movie sequel. <laughs> Let it burn. Fire. Let it go. Like it's fine. Sacrifice it at the altar of cinema. It's right. Yeah. Like it, it it has to burn. Like somebody somebody must die so we all can live. It is the weakest link. Let it go. It was supposed to come out early. It, it's it's done. Let it happen. Re-release Bad Boys for Life. I don't know, but like there's got there's got to be a better way. Yeah, because every studio is pushing their stuff back further and further and further. Um, I, I can't imagine it won't be long before we start hearing about more, even further pushbacks from November to next year. You know, um, the other the other thing that might start to happen is uh, streaming might really start to sink its teeth in. They might start saying, "Hey, you you've been holding on for this movie for six months. It's six eight months past release. Let us buy it from you. We'll we'll release it on our streaming platform or, or a video on demand." Because I think some of these, I think like a Quiet Place too. I would I'd pay twenty bucks to see it. Um, no, you wouldn't. I would. <laughs> you pay twenty dollars to watch a Quiet Place too. I'm really, I'm interested in a lot, mostly because I want to see something new. And you and you jump down my throat for watching Scoob for twenty Scoob. bucks, <laughs> which is now on HBO Max for free, by the way. So it's fine. I'm not upset about that. But uh, yeah, I, I guess you're right. Like, and uh, you're definitely right about streaming services. That that's gotta be. I mean, tempting they they, they gotta be bag. drooling. You know. Yes. 
Yeah. Any. I, I mean, we were, we were. I was. I was talking about this with you on the on, on the group chat last week. There has to be somewhere, and I know this doesn't matter. It's just a petty thing. There has to be. Quiet Place Two was scheduled to come out March eighth, right? Beginning of March, and it got kicked back. So it was right at the tipping point of the U.S. starting to shut down due to coronavirus. Considering how long it takes to print physical media, you know there's a warehouse full of Quiet Place Two Blu-rays just sitting there. Just sitting there, not making money, and taking up retail space that costs rent. Like, you gotta know, it's it's costing money just to keep these movies pushed back. Maybe not much, but it's there. Um, it's gotta be tempting to call up a streaming service and be like, alright, what's, yeah, what's it gonna cost? Tell you what, we'll premiere on HBO Max for this much money or whatever, and, it, and it'll be fine. I mean, they, they gotta be they gotta be thinking about that, right, yeah. big studios? I, yeah, I think some of these, especially some of these smaller and mid-budget films, I think their their best move might be to be sold to a streaming service. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Quiet Place 2 is not the best example of that. It's just the one I have in my head mm-hmm. that you could probably do. I, there was that, uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that's the big one I'm thinking of. There's another movie called Antebellum. It's kind of yeah. new. I'm like, maybe you could kick that around. Like, you could throw that over. I don't, I don't know. But, yeah, there's, there's too many big movies that are supposed to come out in the summer that aren't coming out and don't seem to have any clear path for coming out. And um, that's a bummer. So, sorry to hear about California. Um I guess keep it here on Offscript for more. And our last story before we get to our first review, uh, Palm Springs sets a Hulu streaming record with biggest opening weekend ever. This is not a drill. Palm Springs is making making lots of views, lots of heads turn over on Hulu. Yes, absolutely. And we're going to get into this review soon. But it was a, a big hit, and there's a number of metrics uh, in this article, but it shows it's not their most downloaded or most viewed, but it's like their second or, th- or third, and you know, because they break it down by new releases by week, that sort of thing. Uh, but it's it's a successful mid-budget movie, and this is what I'm talking about, selling things to streaming service. It was uh, bought for, what is it, $17.5 million, which was, uh, I guess, a new record for uh, that distributor, that company. Um, another Lonely Island project, which uh, I don't think i've seen one since uh pop star which was also also really funny yeah yeah pop star never stops never stopping right that's the deal yeah uh yeah i i was i we'll talk about the movie proper but the, the statistics around this are definitely interesting first off it netted more hours watched over the first 72 hours of release than any, any other film on hulu so it doesn't mean it was the most clicked on. It means it had the most time watched. It also generated the highest amount of social interest for any Hulu original film to date. It was also the most discussed Hulu original film on Twitter over the first 72 hours. For streaming services, that matters a lot. I mean, it matters a lot for theatrical distributors too, but like hitting people on digital platforms where they're experiencing digital content is incredibly important for them. And it's interesting statistics to look at. It's good to know that services are tracking this kind of thing. How's it trending on Twitter? How's it doing on social? That stuff matters. Mm -hmm. And I think... The advantage of a film like this, and we'll talk about it more in our review in just a few minutes, I think the advantage of a movie like this is it feels like it's appropriate for our time, right? It's it's made by younger comedians who understand younger audiences. It's, it's, it's a bit of post-irony, right, in a world, in a time when... Uh, yeah, not that much is funny anymore. So it's good. It it lands. I think I think it, it, it hits well, and I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, any Any... I don't know any hot takes about this before we jump into the review. I yeah, think like this is probably yeah. A segue. So I was gonna say yeah, not not too much uh, more in this article other than it was very popular this weekend. Well, with that being said, we should probably get into the review proper. Andy has graciously agreed to take the summary on this one. Andy, please take it away. 
Palm Springs. Here you are, standing on the precipice of something so much bigger than anyone here. But always remember, you are not alone. I don't think that we met. I'm Sarah. Niles. Hi. Hi. Uh, so this is the latest uh, Andy Samberg, Lonely Island comedy uh, coming out on, on Hulu or Hulu, that came out last week, uh, starring, of course, Andy Samberg, Kristen Milioti, and J.K. Simmons. It is a time loop, uh, Groundhog Day-esque uh, story um, where it, it covers a wedding uh, where Andy Samberg is stuck in a time loop endlessly in this this wedding. Um, and when we meet him, he's actually been there for quite some time, and he, he's actually used to just kind of every day being the same. But uh, his new pal, Kristen Milioti, who plays Sarah, gets sucked into the time loop, and she has to then experience, you know, kind of realize that they're stuck, and they keep trying to get out, and they realize that they can't, nothing they do works, and so they end up just kind of partying, a lot and you know having fun going on ridiculous adventures and this eventually turns into a little bit of a romance but also that hits some rocks along the way um i thought this was really good i laughed a lot it was it's really sweet and it's 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 nice and and short and and tight it's 90 minutes flat um and i really really enjoyed it um zach what'd you think uh, like I said earlier, I think this movie lands at a great time. The idea of two people being stuck in an environment they can't break out of kind of fits in a time when we're all like staying home and not going out and kind of just doing the same thing day in and day out. Uh, obviously it fits a good age range, especially for streaming audiences and Hulu. Uh, it's an Andy Samberg comedy, right? Andy Samberg's great. Like the Lonely Island stuff is great. The film opens with a, a title card that says Lonely Island Classics, which I don't <laughs> know if I've seen before, but I can appreciate what they're doing. Overall, I, I like it. I, I do have some problems with it, but I think uh, in general, I think this is a good flick. I, th- I think it's a lot of fun. It's probably worth a watch. So what do you want to get into this? Uh, why don't we get into, into this plot? Yeah, let's. So, uh, like you said at the top, uh, we have two characters who are stuck in a time loop. It is Groundhog Day without using the term Groundhog Day, which is a shame because I kept waiting for them to just say in the movie, it's like Groundhog Day, but they never do. Uh, They are out at, let's see, uh, Kristen Milanotti's character's name, Sarah, and they're out at her sister's wedding. Uh, Sarah's a bit of a uh, a bit of an outcast, right? And and j- as as is Niles, Andy Samberg's character. Both of them are just kind of on the fringes of this group of a family, and the two of them don't really fit in, and they've always kind of been outsiders. So when they end up kind of connecting at the wedding one night, and 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 finding themselves stumbling backwards into this time loop that Niles's character has, as Andy Samberg's character Niles has been in this whole time. Obviously, there's some problems. They don't spend a lot of time dwelling on it, though. They kind of just immediately move into, like... Party time. Nothing to live for, might as well have fun. And then by the end, you get some kind of, like, exposition and character development. And and ultimately, I think a satisfactory ending that you'll have to watch to to, to find out for yourself. Um, As far as the plot's concerned, it's incredibly simple. It's a very, very small amount of sets... It's very low production value. There's not a whole lot of big props or anything. There's very little CGI. Um, And being a bottle film, right, where you're just doing the same set over and over and over again, it's super easy to shoot. 
Like it looks like they went out and, and shot this on vacation, right? Yeah. It's like it's it's like grown ups too. Like we, we went out to Utah or wherever this resort is and we shot this thing over like two weeks and hung out and chilled and it was super easy. Uh and, and I can appreciate like I said, the timeliness of that, that, that makes sense to me. What'd you think? I, I think what I really enjoyed is that, you know, the original Groundhog Day kind of has a, a fairly mundane day. It's essentially a work day uh, in Bill Murray's life. And in here, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, you have to go through a wedding. And a wedding is a lot of work. If you've either been involved or gone to a, a wedding, it's generally like, you know, an all day thing. So having to <laughs> relive that day after day, uh, it sounds exhausting, but also, uh, th- there's so much of that Andy Samberg eventually he learns all these things about all the all of the characters uh, that, that that's really funny um, you know he he gets to make makes the same speech um, just the, the different wedding shenanigans so the, the the setup is is I think uh, really unique and, and it gets played like I said they go end up going on all these adventures because they're just reliving the same day yeah, um, it's it's like I said, easy to shoot, easy to put together. Andy Samberg is almost consistently wearing the same outfit through the whole thing, uh, as as is our 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 female heroine. Same, you know, they, they they each got like three outfits. They've got like a wedding outfit. They've got like they're just casual outfit, and that's about it. And they've got the outfit they wake up in, which which for Andy Samberg's character is all the same outfit. It's this goofy <laughs> shirt. It's like something out of Ace Ventura, right? It's this goofy shirt. Super simple. There's like a bar set. There's there's the the wedding set. Like real easy stuff. You know they filmed all this stuff in like chunks and they just split it up in editing. Like just a breeze to put this movie together. And and I think in a way that hurt my experience watching it because it does feel to me a little cheap. It feels a little bit like you had too much fun making this. You know. Um, but it's still a fun watch. Um, I do want to talk about the comedy a little bit. Uh, for sure, uh, for sure. Yeah, well, where did that land with you? Did you get a lot of laughs? Few yeah, laughs? so I I was into it within the first five minutes. Like the, it, the I was chuckling at just some of the some of the dialogue, some of the the Andy Samberg humor. Like we could get some of these over over the top uh, adventures as well. And like I said, I, comparing it to Fire Saga, which we watched a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's interesting to see someone like Andy Samberg come from things like Hot Rod and move into something like this like he he's you can see a maturity as as a comedian and whereas will ferrell still not funny after 10 years i was thinking how much more i enjoyed this compared to something like fire saga yeah it's that's very true and fire saga in opposition of my bold statement and saying this movie felt lazy uh fire saga has way more sets and way more going on in it and i enjoyed it a lot less Sandberg does basically play himself, right? Like oh, he he's, does. He, his character of Nile. I mean, it's the same haircut. It's the same. Like he's the same dude. Like he's just kind of this goofy, jaded millennial who uh, seems to have this wisdom about the world. I, I think him being caught in the time loop for much longer uh, than 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 our main character Sarah is interesting. I also think it's interesting in the trailer they kind of position it like Sarah is the main character, but like really, it's it's Niles. He's he's kind of the main guy. Um, the movie opens and closes with him, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think that's kind of neat. And the way he just kind of has this whimsical, philo- philosophical uh, attitude that, like, nothing matters. Uh, there's n- there's really no point in living, so you might as well just kind of get by the best you can and party and drink, because why not? I think that's kind of neat, and I think it speaks to its core audience. And, and, and bringing in uh, a female to kind of share that with is interesting. Um, we've also got a foil, I, I should mention, a, a brief character in here, played by J.K. Simmons. 
who's in like four scenes. I mean, it looks like he was on set for two days, but like he's great in this. He's, I mean, J.K. Simmons is a lot of fun. I love that guy. Um, yeah, yeah, very much. He's got a great role in this. Yeah. Um, ultimately, yeah, performances all around were good. I, my my favorite was was uh, Kristen Milanati, Milanati, who the only thing I've seen her in previous to this uh, was in Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. She's Leonardo DiCaprio's first wife in that movie. Oh yeah, that's um, right. That's right. Yeah, she's 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 in like five minutes of that movie, but she's good. And I that that's like an '80s housewife character, right? This is completely different, and she's a completely different actress. And I'm like, oh man, I, I she needs she needs more work because she's really good in this. She's, she's breakout performance, I think. Yeah, I I was gonna move on to that. It it does. Um... It's not superficial. It it has it has some heart. Like you were getting into like because because every day is the same. Niles, who's uh, very cleverly named that after like nihilism. Um, he, he, oh, he, he, oh <laughs> okay. All right, I got it. Nihilism. And I, I read that somewhere. Funny. I didn't I didn't come up with that myself. Um, uh. But uh, you know he he's become nihilistic because every day is literally the same, and he does you know there's no point in developing anything, or you know he's given up trying to escape the time loop um, after lots of <laughs> uh, attempts. So. But then Kristen, uh, not Kristen, uh, Sarah has an, has an issue with that. Like she can't just do this forever. She she has to try and move on and, and get out. And so the, like the, the, there's this, which I don't know. It can it can easily relate to real life. I mean, there's people who live their regular lives like that, where every day is the same. Let's just go get drunk and, and stoned and party and and whatever. So it's it's about kind of like moving on from that uh, kind of nihilistic mentality. Yeah, I, I I wish it had done um, a little bit more of its due diligence for realism's sake, and I know it's a movie about a freaking time loop. It's not realistic, but hear me out. Of uh, of, of framing the character's believability in the concept of a time loop, specifically Sarah Niles has been there a while, right? He's looped a bunch of times. He says straight up, "I don't even know how many times it's been now. I've lost track. Doesn't even know how many days he's been stuck in." Sarah, however, she finds out initially that, that we are in a time loop when she wakes up the next morning and it's the same day and she goes and finds Niles like, what you do to me? And he says, it's a time loop. And she just kind of ardently believes him. And something that I think really sells a movie like Groundhog Day is Bill Murray thinking, okay, well, yesterday must have been a dream or something. And then he wakes up on the third day and he's like, well, maybe it's like a double dream. And then he wakes up on the fourth day and he's like, okay, something's wrong. Like it takes like a week to figure out like, okay, I'm genuinely caught in this thing. Whereas this movie wastes no time. It, it is 90 minutes flat and they are not messing around. It's just, here's the concept. We believe it. We're moving on. And that's cool. I think for, for kind of a, a wacky comedy like this, but I don't know. I, I, I that, there's similar plot developments as we go and we find out more about this kind of time loop that these two are stuck in that share a similar kind of like flagrant disregard for actual I don't I don't want to say science but like actual human behavior and believability right. but that's totally petty on my part and I don't think that will hinder your experience watching this movie in any way it's just something I noticed mm-hmm. yeah um what else what I don't know. Any thoughts about music? I, I real quick, as far as the visuals are concerned, the lighting in this movie is really dynamic. Uh, if you're watching this on Facebook, you can see the trailer here, um, and it's not something anybody's ever going to notice. But it's it'd be really easy to phone in lighting on a movie that feels like it's all shot in the same place and is really lazy. But they didn't. I don't think a whole lot about the music. The color palette's pretty good. So overall, the cinematography is not too shabby. Uh, any other hot takes, Andy? No, I think I'm ready for recommendations. 
All right. Uh, Andy, would you recommend Palm Springs? Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. It's nice and short. Like I said, 90 minutes in and out. It's funny. It's contemporary with all of us stuck in, in quarantine. It's a little bit too real in a lot of ways. Uh, but I had a lot of fun and really liked it. Yeah, I, I think I'd recommend it as well. I, I didn't enjoy it as much as I wanted to. I didn't laugh out loud a whole lot. Um, and like I said, I had some issues with kind of the general presentation of a time loop and how characters interact with that. But those are minor at best and exclusive to me. I don't think that's any problem with the film. That's just my perception of it. Maybe I was riding the Palm Springs hype train or something. But I was excited. And Andy Samberg, new comedy, right? It'll be cool. And this breakout star who's in it. Like, it'll be neat. And I think I overstepped my expectations. So ultimately, I think it's a lot of fun. If you're stuck in quarantine, you got nothing to watch, totally worth your time. It is an easy 90 minutes. It's, it's, it's easy. It's breezy. In a lot of ways, it feels like a long SNL skit. Palm Springs, totally worth it. So yeah, that's Palm Springs, I guess. That's 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 the whole kit and caboodle. And with that, we should move on to our next segment. A uh, bit of an addended segment. Normally, uh, in the middle of the show, we do something like a, uh, a trailer park where we watch a bunch of movie trailers or we do something called The Death of Cinema where we talk about what's killing cinema this week. Some kind of story or outrageous headline or concept about film as a whole that upsets us. But this week, we have one trailer. No, there's two we could have talked about. We could have talked about an American Pickle starring Seth Rogen, but it looks completely mediocre, so we figured we'd pass on it. This week we're talking about Project Power. Uh, yeah, so this is a new action uh, street drama superhero thing from Netflix coming out in August, August 14th to be exact. Um, and what this stars, uh, it stars Jamie, Fo- I keep wanting to say Jamie Lee Fox. Jamie, that's Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie yeah, that's Fo- true. Jamie Lee, yeah, okay. <laughs> Jamie Fox, yeah. Jamie Fox and uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt as uh, two detectives trying to s- solve some sort of drug thing. And there's this pill that if you take it, it gives you superpowers. But the catch is you don't know what superpowers you get, and you only get them for uh, five minutes at a time. So people are using the these pills to both commit crimes and also stop crimes from happening. But like I said, it's a toss up. You don't know what you're going to get. So that's kind of what the plot is it looks like there's loads of action and special effects and we got a couple of big stars it takes place in louisiana that's the film uh andy this is a netflix original film right i'm curious does this remind you of any other netflix original film starring two buddy cops in a magical realism world uh it's an alternate <laughs> reality to br- what we're currently in <laughs> you mean bright yeah i mean bright uh, I know it's not bright. I know it's not bright. I know I shouldn't judge it like it's bright. Bright had I, honestly what seemed like much loftier aspirations than this. Bright was looking to make, uh, you know, elves and trolls and all kinds of stuff uh, made manifest in a modern setting, which was certainly a lofty aspiration. This, some people pop some CGI pills and turn into CGI monsters for five minutes. What's the problem? Like, it's <laughs> super easy. It starts Jamie Lee Fox and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It'll be a breeze. But I can't help shake that feeling, and I think it's because of Netflix's seemingly recent reputation with new films like this, where they look pretty cool in the trailer, and then you watch it, it's like, oh, that totally would not have made it in the theaters. That would have bombed hard. Um, but I don't want to feel this way. Am I crazy? What, what do you think, Andy? Did you get yeah, that I, at all? I mean, we know that uh, Netflix's writing is always kind of its weak point, but that 
where they excel is in action and star power. And that's what we're getting in this. So maybe it'll, you know, have a little bit better script. But even if it doesn't, it looks really entertaining. And I'm a big fan of both Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, I am too. And apparently this one's a bit of a passion project for Fox. I think he's really involved in this. I don't know how Joseph Gordon-Levitt got tangled up in it. But the concept on its face is kind of cool, right? The idea that there's these pills you take that turn you into a superhero for five minutes. And everybody has a different ability. And whatever you take, that's your... like. It's not like different pills do different things. It's one kind of pill. And you have a specific ability to you. That's kind of cool. You can turn invisible. You can have super strength, speed. You can light up in flames like Machine Gun Kelly in the trailer because it's actually played by Machine Gun Kelly. Uh, I <laughs> Who's it getting up. a lot of work, apparently. Yeah, right? I don't know what that's about. But uh, I have also don't know if I've ever listened to any of that man's music. He makes music, right? That's his thing. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Anyway. Uh, like, on its face, it's it, just like Bright, it's a cool concept. And just like Bright, it looks rad. And just like Bright, it's on Netflix. And just like Bright, I'm hopeful it's good. I'm just a little afraid because just like Bright, it might be bad. And I don't know what that... I, I guess it's going to mean nothing because it's a freaking streaming movie, right? I shouldn't be overthinking it. But damn it, I do a movie podcast. I'm going to do my due diligence. So that's where I'm at with, with, with Project Power, I guess. Yeah, uh... We'll see. And like I said, it, it definitely looks more interesting than uh, some of the other stuff that's been coming out on, on Netflix. Um, mm. So we'll see what it is. It also stars uh, Rodrigo Santoro, um, who was famously Xerxes in... <laughs> is that uh, who that is? In oh 300, yeah. We were just talking about him. We were watching something the other day, Christine and I, and she saw a guy who was like, she was like, I think that's Xerxes from 300. And I was like, what? No, that's not Xerxes from 300. And she said, how do you know? I was like, because that guy looked whack. And I would know if I saw him. And sure enough, there's a trailer with him in it. And I could not tell you that was him. So funny story. But I don't know. Uh, yeah, it looks okay. Project Power. Do we know when it's coming out? Do you have any idea? August 14th. August 14th. It's it's nice to see a release date on a movie trailer and they actually mean it. You know what I mean? Like, you know it's probably actually going to come out on the 14th. Um, unlike theatrical trailers that have just been pushed back. Anyway, we should move into our final review of the episode. I'm going to be taking the summary on this one. Uh, the movie is Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. So The Dark Knight is the story of Bruce Wayne as Batman, just I'd say a few years into his tenure as the Cape Crusader, uh, walking, moving around Gotham and knocking out mobsters and criminals when suddenly a new threat appears, a man named the Joker, who has no, no intent or really no plan, so he claims just chaos and malice in his heart, and his whole goal is to remind Gotham that anarchy and chaos is better than... Being fair? I don't, I don't know. I didn't really work out my summary for this. Uh, of course, he's going to have to grapple with Batman, but also Gotham's white knight, Harvey Dent, the new... Uh, DA. Attorney, DA. I was going to say attorney general. District attorney. Good God. How many times have I seen this film and I can't get this? And also, Commissioner Gordon, uh, who is the new criminal commissioner. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's certainly going to be a fight. <laughs> so that's... <laughs> 
Well, tell people where, where we saw this. Yeah, so let's talk about where we saw this. So we went and saw this at a Cinemark Theater, which is uh, located in Dallas. Their headquarters are actually in Plano, just north of us. So in DFW, where we're at, a few of these theaters are open nationwide. They are not. We're fortunate enough to have some around us. Uh, we went and saw this on an IMAX screen, which is exciting, because ever since I found out The Dark Knight came out in IMAX way back in 2008 and I didn't see it on IMAX, I have not been able to find a screening of this film on a big 80-foot-tall screen proper until this last weekend. It has been a white whale of a movie for me. I remember, God, way back when Andy and I were working at the same office, probably about four or five years ago, I told him one day when we just started talking about doing this show, I said, man, I'd love to go see The Dark Knight in IMAX. I would kill to see that movie. And now I have. <laughs> And uh, it, 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 the only thing I might have killed is my own health, I <laughs> guess. Myself. myself. <laughs> so Oof. let's hope we don't get uh, COVID-19. I probably shouldn't joke about this. It's a really serious thing. Real talk. And um, yeah, let's talk about The Dark Knight. Andy, how many times have you seen this film? Oh, I, 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 I can't even count. Like 20 or 30. Yeah. I, 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 this used to be the movie I would watch on airplanes a lot because it's the perfect length for a throne for a flight it's about two and a half hours you know you, you and you you can't turn on your computer until like 20 minutes in anyways so it, it's a good for for a kind of a mid-length flight yeah and it's 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 very simple in its presentation nolan christopher nolan's fantastic at non-linear storytelling and the way he kind of weaves the story together but visually He's a very simple director. It's it's a, it's a lot of single shots. It's it's one person on screen saying one thing and it cuts to another one person on screen. It's not a whole lot of camera pans and dollies. It's very simple stuff. I, I sent Andy a link earlier today about Nolan's visual style, so excuse me if I'm gushing about it, but um, it's, a, it's, it's a simply told film, right? Um, but it's a very complex plot and it moves very fast. If you don't keep up, you're going to miss things. And that makes it good for rewatch because you'll catch stuff you didn't notice before, especially in this wonderful kind of love triangle we have between Bruce Wayne as Batman, Harvey Dent, and the Joker, who are all fantastic, played by... Uh, Oh gosh, how did Heath, how, how Heath have Ledger? I done this? No, I knew Heath Ledger. I was going to start with Christian Bale. That was, Christian that was Bale. the first one. Aaron Eckhart <laughs> and Heath Ledger. Yeah, Bruce Wayne, Batman, Heath Ledger. It's fine. Um, so let's jump into kind of our general plot, right? Uh, you want to you want to give people a better rundown than I did because <laughs> I didn't do a very good job. Sure, sure. Well, I want to start off saying this is one of my favorite movies of all time, um, and I never got to see it in in. IMAX myself. In fact, when I when it came out, I was working these summer camps, and I had to actually wait like two and a half weeks after it came out, like like damn near till August to watch it. And by then, like most people had already seen it, and so, somehow it didn't get spoiled for me. Um, but I did have to watch it in a theater that was practically empty, so I, I missed that like opening night, like huge amount of hype, and um, so that, that's just kind of unfortunate. I didn't have that, that big kind of Avengers Endgame experience uh, to watch this film. But anyways, we we meet Batman kind of at the height of his um, power. He's he's putting away the mob and he's focusing on organized crime. And that's part of what I think really makes this movie in this universe work is it's it's very grounded in you know he's taking down mobsters, it, it and it's only when he starts to succeed in that, that they turn to the Joker and we said, you got to get rid of this guy. And so he kind of turns things on its head by, by, um, you know, he's essentially a terrorist and he says, I will kill people every day until Batman turns himself in. So he kind of makes people turn against, 
uh, Batman and, and just really changes up the dynamic. And so that, that kind of squares off this, you know, the Joker versus Batman situation where he's not necessarily taking on the man as much as he is like the system of corruption and, and kind of organized crime behind it. Yeah, the, the two of them are, are painted in this wonderful dichotomy where they, they use the system around them to kind of dance in and out of the shadows, which is fitting as a metaphor for Batman and the Joker, but also fitting within the world of the film and helps helps suspend your disbelief that you're watching a superhero movie because this movie doesn't really feel like a superhero movie, and it totally is. Um, does not feel like a comic book movie. This feels like something that could potentially really happen, even though you're watching a mobster run around in freaking face paint. Um, somehow Nolan manages to turn this into something that feels real. And I think the way that happens, because exactly what you said, we're fighting larger systems. It is not just fistfights between two people who are angry at each other. We're using money and mobs and influence and politics and big business, even in, 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 in regards to Wayne Corporation, to make things happen. We're, 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 we're getting funding. We're moving money. We're blackmailing people. We're going to Hong Kong and ripping a guy out of the side of a building. All of that makes this feel like such a larger scale story, which is hard to believe in a fictional city of Gotham, right? This isn't even a real place, but somehow Nolan manages to make this just feel so genuine and so grounded. And it's weird. It's, it's a weird thing to watch because we don't have a Wayne Manor. This, this this film doesn't have one. It, it burned down at the yeah. end of Batman Begins. It all takes place in the penthouse, right? Yeah, this film is missing a lot of like kind of Batman staples that that you see a lot in the comics, like Wayne Manor, um, or that we see things get destroyed, like the 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 tumbler, the Batmobile, which was like a big de- a big deal that uh, that he was able to do that. Right, and they they blow it up at like the halfway point in this movie. He Batman blows it up himself. Doesn't even, doesn't even sweat it. Just moves on right to the next. Yeah. Uh, we've got a white knight, uh, Gotham, uh, for Gotham, played by Harvey Dent, uh, who, and we haven't talked about this, are we, t- are we talking spoilers on Dark Knight? Do we need to- I mean, it's 12 years old, I think. We I can... feel okay about saying, I can look at box office numbers and yes. say, pretty much anybody who listens to this podcast Two-Face. We has seen know. it. Yeah, right. He turns, he turns into Two-Face, right. Uh, Harvey Dent is, is, is a DA and, 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 and Detective Gordon becomes commissioner. Like, we're, we're working in- larger police systems, larger fiscal systems, larger societal systems, and it makes the story seem so much bigger that you don't even really pay attention that there's not a whole lot of Batman on screen in this film, right? Yeah, yeah you forget that this is a comic book film after a while because it's it's more of a crime drama than anything because it's evol- involving all those um, you know, entities, like you said, the police, the commissioner's office, the the DA, the the mobsters, the the essentially hired gun who is the Joker. You know, it reminds me in, in a lot of ways of uh, No Country for Old Men. You know, Anton Chigurh is a similar foil to, to the Joker, someone with no code. Yeah, who just kind of comes out of the shadows as this bad guy who really has no... No logic to how he gets around or how he does his things. They just kind of happen, and the other characters have to react to and deal with that. How do you do that when there's no sense of plan in place? Um, and that's a big theme in this story. Something else I had not noticed uh, until we watched this again this time is Nolan's uh, striking use of things like drone footage and helicopter footage. There are a ton of aerial shots in this film. Mm-hmm. A big, wide, sweeping over the city things happening. And there's always this feeling of everything having a larger impact. I mean, consistently, we, we've got characters going on, on news briefings and press conferences to announce things to the city. And it's weird because other superhero films don't do this. 
Um, not anymore, at least. The last time I saw a press conference of superhero movies, like at the end of Iron Man 1. Uh, otherwise, right. it just doesn't happen. Every, everything's very sincere and personal, and you're grounded, and you're hanging out with Captain America the whole movie. This doesn't do that. You're often cutting away from Batman and Bruce Wayne to get around to what's happening in the larger story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a- absolutely. Like I said, the the groundedness is part of of what makes it so unique. Like, I, I always remember that this and uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out in the, around the same time. Uh, both were were in that summer, and Crystal Skull was de- still depending on heavily on on CGI. And there's these terrible, terrible CGI scenes in there. Meanwhile, the Dark Knight has. Christopher Nolan actually blowing up a building, actually crashing vehicles, actually flipping over a truck. Like all that that you're seeing, they did because he right. wants to to make it feel as real as possible. Yeah, he's he's a sucker for realism and he doesn't like using CGI. I remember reading back in the day that he really didn't like the way um and maybe this is just a weird interview I read somewhere. Maybe it's not even true anymore. But he didn't like the way they did Two Face because they couldn't figure out a way to make it look like 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 a burn victim would have flesh missing and if you add prosthetics you're adding volume and mass so it looks goofy it looks like to- like uh, uh, yeah. Tommy Lee Jones in Batman Forever um so they had to do it with CGI and it still looks pretty striking like i still remember the first time i was in the theater and everybody just like gasped in horror when they see how Harvey Dent looks following his uh, assassination attempt by the Joker um but he wasn't a fan. Like he, he likes doing stuff physically. Not that long ago, I saw a video of the tunnel scene in this in this film when uh, Joker's truck that says "Slaughter is the best medicine" is driving alongside a bunch of SWAT trucks, and and uh, a garbage disposal truck is there, also involved in this whole thing. And and Batman ends up running the tumbler under it and running the garbage truck straight up into the ceiling and dragging it along. That was a shot with miniatures. And I had no idea. That's a miniature. Yeah, you can look at footage of them shooting that and then adapting it into the final film. And, like, that's totally miniature footage. It's like it's like a three-foot-wide garbage truck and, like, right. a three-foot-long tumbler that they stuck together and shot on. And it totally works. It's a practical effect. It's amazing how that stuff blends in in this film. Yeah. Um, let's move Let's move on to performances. Yeah, let's. Oh, God. Where, where, where do you want to start with this? <laughs> well, we, I feel like we have to start at the Oscar-winning performance of Heath Ledger as the Joker. An incredible performance, even uh, 12 years later. Um, he just disappears in this role. And uh, just so many... I mean, the Joker's a classic character. He's been around for 70 years. And he still f- managed to find a way to reinvent uh, you know, the character as this chaotic person that but while still being very true to the comic book like if you'd what i like about this movie is that if you'd never read a single batman or or joker comic book or anything like that you, you would you are still drawn into that world it still hits a lot of these mythologies or kind of lore and background of these characters without you having to know them you know things like how the, the joker doesn't really have a past or how he doesn't remember the past so he just kind of makes it up and like to him it is real because he he doesn't remember um and, and saying you know like and we see that with his story about the scars that he he's telling that story sincerely because he can't remember it uh, any differently. And and also how he puts people in impossible situations and makes them make impossible decisions. Yeah. Uh, Ledger is so brilliant in this role. Um, obviously, this is one of the last ones before his death. I think his last actual performance was a movie called The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, which is uh-huh. a Terry Gilliam film, uh, which he is not nearly as good in. But, but Heath Ledger did not ever want to be 
the heartthrob. He he apparently really despised roles like his his character in A Knight's Tale or or Ten Things I Hate About You because he didn't want to be this just like teen heartthrob from from Australia. He wanted to be like a real factual actor. I think he took a lot of inspiration from characters like from people like Johnny Depp, who very easily could have just been you know just like a like a looker, a very charismatic leading man. He didn't want that. He's like I want to play weird. I want to play off type. I want to play something different. And this was a huge opportunity for him. And the way he takes this idea of Joker as we know him, and at the time when he had adapted him, this comic book character, a very Mark Hamill kind of performance, even Jack Nicholson kind of had his own way. The way they take that and just flip it completely on its head and make the Joker into this character who just draws your attention in a way few villains in film ever have is amazing. You can't not just stare at the guy when he's on screen. He is all you're looking at. Well, even it, rewatching it, I try to look at other things and like he just it just draws your eye. Maybe it's the face face paint, but like, oh my god, like is is so much charisma in this performance. It's unbelievable. Right. And the well, and there's so many little things he's doing. Like his voice is really really deep. Like he's he's like growling almost. Um and he he does like this this tongue flick thing with that that he developed is as well and um you know, he he's uses a lot of humor and is like his voice goes up and down a lot. It, it's, it's a really incredible thing. And it, and it leads to a great conflict. when we see that, like the interrogation scene between Batman and, and the Joker, which has become like a classic, um, incredible scene. And then again, it's not like, it's not a fist fight that happens there. It, it's, it's more of a, a battle of wills, a battle of, of like psychology. Yeah, he, he does a fantastic job in the role. You know, I read somewhere that the reason he licks his lips is because apparently it had to do with the prosthetic makeup. And originally it had it had trouble staying on. And so he had to kind of like just keep licking his lips in between scenes. And he just ended up working it into the performance, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, as far as the, the voice is concerned and the role, I know that was something he developed uh, when he was getting ready for the character. He ended up locking himself in, an, in, in a hotel room for like a month or something, scribbling notes and, and books and coming up with it. And, and um, there's a lot more revealing information in that documentary about him. There's on Spike TV. I am Heath Ledger. There's a lot more information about how we kind of developed the character and the role. Um, as, as far as his, uh, I'm getting way too into Heath Ledger on this. Um, but excuse me, I love mm-hmm. Heath Ledger. As far as his untimely demise, uh, supposedly there's mixed thoughts on whether or not it actually had anything to do with this role. So I don't, I don't think it did. Um, but I guess you know, right. do your own research and believe what you want. But moving on to other performances, uh, we should talk about Christian Bale, of course who is pretty good as Batman. Uh, I, I don't think this is necessarily his best Batman. In fact, in a lot of ways, watching it now, I don't think he maybe had the same passion as he does for some other roles. I don't know if he was tired or what, but something about him just feels a little off in this. Maybe it's his Bruce Wayne, because Bruce Wayne is really strong. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I, I love his his interpretation of Bruce Wayne. Like Because any, any time, like when, when he first ha- kind of has dinner with Harvey Dent or when he has the, the fundraiser, like he's just such like a jerk. Like it's just, uh, you know, that, that kind of wealthy, entitled, you know, playboy thing. He does set so well. Um, yes. And then, but then when, when he does have to eventually get in the suit, like I said, that interrogation um, scene is... Obviously, it's mostly the Joker, but it, I mean, the Batman has some great lines, and that's where a lot of it, like, you know, a lot of this film is about pushing people to their limits, and that scene, is, that interrogation scene, is almost where where that begins. Yeah, I you're right. The interrogation scene is fantastic, and one thing I noticed watching an IMAX and I never noticed before is that when Batman picks up Heath Ledger, Joker, excuse me, and slams him into a wall, like the tiles break on the wall, like it, it, it really the force behind what he's doing is outstanding. 
Um, yeah, I think I think Bale really struggles in the cowl. The interrogation scene, things like that, they're a little bit more sincere. I think he has more opportunity, but I think a lot of it, he just kind of just gets lost. And, he's and got maybe the that's voice. yeah, and maybe that's he's what being Batman voice. is. He's got the chin. He's got the <laughs> voice. Maybe that's what being Batman is. Maybe he just hates the goofy black makeup around his eyes. But I think his his best stuff is easily when he's not actually Batman, <laughs> because when he's Batman. He's just kind of nothing. I, I don't know. I, I, there, there are scenes that, that are different and stand out in a different way, but I don't know. It, it's, it's weird <laughs> for me. Um, it's worth mentioning being Christian Bale uh, in Batman Begins. He was 190 pounds. Then he lost 35 pounds for a movie called Rescue Dawn in 2006, and then two years later he gained it all back for this movie because that's how Bale works. So he's definitely devoted. Uh, he doesn't phone it in. He's, yeah. he's got the muscles, and he definitely does the action. And I appreciate that. We also have really good performances from Aaron Eckhart as the the DA, and then who 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 falls into the madness of of Harvey Dent Two Face. Um, really good performance from him as well, and of course uh, regulars like Michael Caine as Alfred and oh, I can't remember who <laughs> Commissioner Gordon. Commissioner. Oh, yes. we've been talking about this movie too much. Yeah. Who is this person? Commissioner uh, Gordon, of course. Uh, Gary, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. Got it. Um, and then Morgan uh, Freeman. Morgan Freeman. That's the other one. Yes, uh, I can. <laughs> I I will agree in kind. Aaron Eckhart's actually really good in this movie. I, I haven't seen a lot of Aaron Eckhart films. I've seen this, and thank you for not smoking. Allegedly, thank you for smoking. That, allegedly yeah. that that's what got him this role was which, how his yeah. car- his lobbyist person from which thank you for smoking. makes a lot of sense because he's great in both of these movies and it, he's he's so charismatic and he just kind of lights up the screen and he's, he's got this streak of blonde hair that nobody else in gotham has blonde hair except the joker whose hair is freaking green but i mean i don't know you can see the color anyway he's the only one in this whole movie with blonde hair i swear and and he just stands out that way he's got he's got the great jawline and he's charismatic and and it's, it's a great setup for later in the film when he announces a fake out that he is the Batman because people actually start to believe it. And you can kind of see his character just descend into the madness more and more and more, get more frustrated. Even from the very beginning of the film, when he's trying to get a hold of Batman and he tells Gordon, Detective Gordon, hey, I, I need to get a hold of your guy. And, and Gordon's like, I don't know anything about that. I, I don't talk to Batman. He's like, I know you do. Don't say that. <laughs> and like they do, a, they do a great job of ramping his character up for this big fall. And he gets more angry angry and more mad until eventually he snaps uh which is is perfect setup for for two-face and then he goes in a freaking tear and murders a lot of people with no with seemingly no remorse which feels very against type but i guess that's what two-face is right yeah i i think that that's part of the brilliance of this film is you know where harvey dent ends up you know he becomes two-face and knowing where this film is gonna where that character is gonna end doesn't make the journey any le- less impressive you know he could because he is very idealistic he is the white knight he is the person who is incorruptible and so, and is trying to do the, the right thing um but who is is the person who essentially goes is pushed beyond their limits you know we're, yeah. we're, we're going to talk about what a lot of like themes and th- things in a second um but yeah he he is the one that shows what happens if you if you go too far it, to where you can't come back yeah. Also, outstanding performances by Gary Oldman. Uh, my, uh, Michael Caine is great as as Alfred, and probably his last really great performance because he just doesn't get enough time in Dark Knight Rises to establish himself as a character. Mm-hmm. I mean, he does, but like he he gets more screen time in this. It's a bit more sincere. And uh, Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox is fantastic. We should probably talk about Maggie Gyllenhaal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
that, that is an issue that I do see. Is uh, this yeah. movie does definitely fail the the Bechdel test? There's definitely not enough women in this film. No, that that improves more in Dark Knight Rises with the addition of uh, Catwoman and Talia Al Ghul. Um, so yes. so that that does improve, but that definitely is a fault. And Maggie Gyllenhaal is also very good. She's an important character in this as well. She is. I, I I wish they had been able to keep their original Rachel Dawes um, from Batman Begins. What was her name? Katie uh, Holmes. Katie Holmes. Yeah, she. Katie Holmes uh, did not want to do this film. She opted to do a movie called Mad Money, which came out in 2008, starring uh, Katie Holmes, Queen Latifah, and I forget the other woman. That was a mistake. <laughs> big mistake yeah big mistake you should have been in this movie um i think it would have helped sell the performance and and i think rachel dawes is so much stronger a character in this she's at one point interrogating uh lao a, a chinese investor who's involved with the mob uh she's she's on harvey dent's arm as as the girlfriend of the new uh, district attorney which is huge yeah. she's involved she, with bruce wayne like she's a very di- she's she has the potential to be a very dynamic character here but her her character arts cut is cut a little short, and you just don't get enough. And, it, and in a way, it just feels like they just kind of shoot in Maggie Gyllenhaal, like just 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 get in and chew scenery for a few scenes, and then we'll get we'll get you out of this film. Like that's that's how it starts to feel to me, and that's a shame. Yeah, yeah. She, I mean, she does get a good scene with the Joker, but that's mostly him talking. That's one of his scar stories. Yeah, and that's 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 a shame. I, I wish they had done more with her. Um, I, I, but I think that's more of an issue of writing than performance. I think she's fine. I, I mm-hmm. really do. Um, we should talk about action and setting a little bit. Um, yes. <laughs> any, any any hot takes? There's so much incredible action in this movie. Even 12 years later, it looks so good. It starts with one of my favorite openings of all time, The Bank Heist, uh, which was parodied. If if you've seen uh, the Watchmen series uh, on HBO, they actually parodied that that bank heist in, in one of the one of the episodes. Um, and just so many other set pieces, like the the chase through the the underground, uh, where the the Joker is trying to capture Harvey Dent, uh, the big action set piece at the end, and other just like Nolan just loves to do things so big, like the parade where where the the Joker shoot shoots at the at the mayor. You know, as soon as those shots are fired, hundreds of people spread in all directions, and like those are all real people. Like they got you know several hundred extras to make these scenes happen, and, and it's just he he loves working on that scale and loves making things as real uh, as they can be. Yeah, and it and it really shows. Like I said at the top, I, I, Nolan's visual style is is frankly very simple. He does not do a lot of like whip pans. He does not do a lot of camera reveals. He just shoots what's there. That's that's how he's always done it. He, he uses like three sizes of lens in this film, really. Uh, this was one of his first ones where he really started to dabble in IMAX, so you do get a bit of visual distinction that way, and you can see he just starts to get into visual storytelling more. Things like the bank heist at the at the top of the film are so strong. Like, there's that iconic shot of Joker standing on the sidewalk and that camera just zooming in slowly on the mask. Like, it comes in so good, and he doesn't normally do stuff like that in his films, so this was a really cool opportunity for him to kind of flex his wings a little bit, and he took it. He took that opportunity. The practical effects are fantastic. The action, as far as the fist fights, they're a little jumpy as far as the cuts go, but they work. It's not so much about what's happening in the action scenes, it's what's happening around them, right? It's it's not about Joker blowing up the MCU. It's about him leaning out a cop car window afterwards and, and driving around the city. It's an utter chaos. Like that's 
those are the moments that make this stuff stand out. I, I think the action is still fantastic. The, the Batman gadgets are just as good as ever. I actually kind of dig their, like, underground temporary Batcave thing they've got set up. It's actually yeah, that, a really cool that's set. That's actually, uh, again, like we were we were saying how some of the Batman staples are missing. The Batcave is missing. Instead, we he's got, like, yeah, this un- underground bunker. It's actually kind of cooler in a, in a lot of ways. Or yeah. it, it works. It functions the, the same, um, and it works uh, really well. Yeah, it's just this monstrously large underground space that has, like, ceiling tile lights in it and, like, totally works in a concrete floor and, like, it, it totally sells and you believe it's, like, Yeah, a I mean, it, it fits the tumbler. Yeah. Uh, oh gosh, I, I, I don't think I have an issue with runtime. Normally, I'd be like, let's talk about how it's two and a half hours long, but, like, it does not shake me at all being a two and a half hour film because it doesn't feel like it wastes any time. In fact, it moves kind of fast for two and a half hours, really. Yeah, it, it does move move really quick. I, I feel like it's written really tight despite the length. It, it's just no scene is wasted. Everything is important. Everything needs to be there. Yeah, every, everything is set up for payoff later. You're right. No, no scene is wasted, and that's just a signature of tight writing. It's something I'd expect from something like an Edgar Wright picture or, of course, of course a Christopher Nolan film. He shines in this movie, man. He really does. It is a fantastic Nolan picture. So one thing I do want to talk about is this movie in conjunction with Dark Knight Rises, right? Sure, sure. We sure, talked sure. about this a little bit after we saw it. This movie came out. Everybody freaked out. It won Academy Awards. It was huge. Dark Knight Rises comes out later. Not so big. What's the problem? Is this movie fundamentally better than Dark Knight Rises? <laughs> What's yeah. Well, it's good. These are two different things. And this is, I mean, probably this is a masterpiece of filmmaking and of comic book films as well. The Dark Knight Rises is just a different kind of film. To me, it's more like a Marvel style film or, or just like a comic book film in general. You're, you kind of have this over the top villain, this over the top plot, you know, your characters in it are in a different place. It's not also that, that film struggles with uh, a number of um, kind of plot holes that, that are pretty major. Um, but it's, st- that's still, it's still a very good film. And I always say if, if the dark Knight rise, it had come out second instead of third, we would have thought it was amazing. It would have blown our minds even then, just not quite as much. So just in comparison to The Dark Knight, it it doesn't hold up as high, but it's still an excellent film, I think. Yeah, it's 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 real good, man. It's really not that bad. And, and you're right, there's a couple issues in it, but ultimately it is a fine Batman film. But next to Dark Knight, it just hurts. And, and this one got so much buzz and so much action and so much attention and people were so excited for the next one. There's no way it could have possibly met expectations. So history looks unkindly on it. And that's a shame because it's a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. I don't mind Dark Knight Rises. I really don't. But, but it, this one's still my favorite, hands down. It's so good. And it's, yeah. the, first, it's the first Batman film to not feature the word Batman <laughs> in in the title and it doesn't matter at all like somehow it's cooler for it you know yeah. like from from a marketing perspective that would be horrible but yeah that's the same reason man of steel didn't isn't called superman yeah because it, it's like cool and trendy but Zack snyder's did not quite have it was missing quite have the nolan chops <laughs> yeah didn't quite get there right um, but you can certainly see there was inspiration for where the DC universe was going based on these films, probably specifically this one, right? Like this mm-hmm. is what they were trying to create. Right. 
Um, and part of what what I wanted to uh, be sure to get into is kind of like themes and meanings within this because there's a lot of, of of takes. You know, it's it's about corruption. It's about standing up for what's right. It's about the cost of w- what it, it means to stand up. And what one of the most interesting uh, takes, and I, I believe this is really on purpose, is that the Dark Knight is a parallel to the War on Terror, the you know the American War on Global Terror, which kind of dominated the the two thousands. Um, and we we see that because we have a lot of deep questions of what do you do when you are a, a person or an entity that has codes and laws and and all that and you face people who don't what do you do how do you how do you stop people like this and nolan gives us a very kind of complex answer and there's a really good uh analysis by the show me the meaning podcast that delves in, into this but uh that's kind of what we get and and there's references to like i said to al-Qaeda to the the American torture program that Nolan is referencing a lot of that through this and he doesn't give us easy answers it's kind of complicated Zach what do you think about this no I think you're right and looking at it through the lens of the war on terror is something I haven't done until pretty recently actually Uh, not 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 as recent as our latest screening but uh, nobody really pointed that out to me until you pointed out to me like a year or two ago and and watching it again, it's much more apparent now. You're right. Like this, in in being a film that tries to embrace something larger than superheroes, it definitely starts to overlap with the war on terror. Right? What what is terror as a concept? Does how does it work? And and I think that can be summed up in scenes like the the boat harbor scene at the end of the film when we have two boats that are, have triggers to blow each other up and one's full of convicts and the other one's full of families they both have things for the other boat and if nobody does anything both boats blow up um and we wait and we wait and see what fear does to people uh, in a much stronger way than batman begins did which is funny because that actually had a fear toxin that yeah. made you scared <laughs> but this somehow works better because it's not about it's not about what scares you. It's it's about the chaos and the unknown. And that's exactly where Joker thrives, right? Not knowing what's next, not knowing what's coming, not having a plan, so he claims. Um, and I think that stuff is so effective, especially in, in a 2008 America, which is just coming, what, seven years off of 9-11 is still in the middle of, of a war in Iraq, uh, as we still are now, surprisingly. Um that, yeah, that, stuff, that stuff really resonated with people. Absolutely, because it brings up this, like, again, how do you fight this? How do you, how do you go beyond what you, what you normally have to do to fight crime to get these people? And then, and what happens if you go too far? And I think Harvey Dent is the example of what happens if you go too far and lose yourself? Because we see him, uh, you know, when he kidnaps the uh, one of the guys at the parade and it get, begins to kind of interrogate him in a very illegal way. <laughs> illegal way and that that's him starting to cross that that line um and nolan gives us a very uh, complex answer which i i believe to be you know is it okay to cross the line and sometimes go outside the code and i think he is telling us yes it is but you have to come back right you know you, you can't have to... you can't stay there you can't live there you got to bring it back and we we see this kind of with Luci- uh, lucius fox's character at the end with the the big spying device of batman's build he said i'm going to help you this one time but then we're done yeah um there's there's that fi- that very famous line from this film you either die here or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain and multiple big characters in this film cross that gap at some point i mean you've got lucius fox at the end right dealing with sonar technology that he openly says is illegal and he's not going to be a part of other than this one time to help batman once to save gotham because i because i gotta do it right you've got harvey dent who is willing to interrogate people and do generally awful things 
to try to do the right thing. You've got Batman at the end who is literally lying to try to move Gotham along past this tragedy and say, hey, Harvey Dent wasn't the bad guy here because if he was, then everything falls apart and people don't have anything to believe in anymore. You've got Alfred. He's got this story about a thief in Burma where he explains that, like, I did the wrong thing to try to do the right thing, you know? Um yeah it, it's it's I, really something else yeah like the the metaphor is running under all of this. yeah i was gonna say i love his character because he he explains the plot in much simpler terms that like again that that fame the a size of the size of a tangerine <laughs> like the, that yeah. famous line a ruby the size of a tangerine yeah that, that but that that story of of you know how did how do you how did you fight the man who you know who couldn't be bargained with, who wanted to watch the world burn. He says, we burned the forest down. You know, we, in other words, we had to go to extreme measures yeah. to, to beat this person. Yeah. We did exactly what he wanted. Yeah. And we got him, but like at what cost, you know, mm-hmm. um, fascinating stuff. Yeah. Fascinating it, stuff for a superhero. Film. <laughs> exactly. And I can't believe, so in 2008, this was, or it would have been the 2009 Oscars, uh, this was not nominated for Best Picture. It absolutely should have been. It absolutely would have won. But that, if you look at the other nominees, it was things like Slumdog Millionaire, which is a good film, but really forgettable, along with a bunch of other f- forgettable films like Milk, The Reader, Benjamin Button, all of which I've seen. But if this, if The Dark Knight were to come out today, it would absolutely be one of the nominated, and it, and it might have a good chance of winning. Like it's it's really that incredible. Yeah, and I think that's what's so fascinating is the legacy this film has left because somehow it doesn't have much of one, which is weird. Like, obviously, superhero films have stuck around. That on its face has worked, but Marvel films have gone in a completely different direction. And DC has tried to replicate what's happening here. They've tried to tackle larger things. The idea of Superman being a god amongst men and how the world responds to that is certainly reaching for what's happening in this film as far as theme is concerned, as far as morality is concerned. But none of them get there. We were talking about it after we saw it. This is like this is feels like a postmodern superhero film before post before superhero films were modern. Like somehow this feels like a precursor for what should be coming down the line at some point and 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 it happened before we even got to the finish line it was it was ahead of its time before its time began yeah and we almost had to wait uh, you know until something like 2017's logan came out before we revisited a a character dealing with these kinds of much more serious issues yeah it's 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 really something else and and I love Batman Begins, and I, I like Dark Knight Rises a whole, whole lot, but this one just just stands out in a way that nothing else does. It it, it, it shines in a way that none of the other superhero films do, and, and it's really hard to, to figure out why exactly that is, but I think we took a pretty good swing at it, mm-hmm. at least in this conversation. Right, and I, and I think part of, th- with this film, you can't do 10 or 20 films like this. That's why Marvel does what they do. The, you got you to gotta back down a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, arguably, even three films might have been too much for what they were doing here. Um, because right. look at Dark Knight Rises. Like, even then, you start to run into some problems. This one is just kind of lightning in a bottle. Something about it just landed perfect, and it's just it's just pitch perfect in every aspect. It just lands so good. So, Andy, any other thoughts on Dark Knight before recommendations? I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend The Dark Knight? Absolutely. This is one of my favorite films of all time. It's definitely one or two. I might have to start rewatching it a bunch again. Um, incredible performances. <laughs> incredible, uh, you know, as a comic book film, as an action film, as a crime film. Uh, 
it's just so good on every level. It's so complex. There's lots of, of deep, deep meanings. And we haven't had really had a film like it since in, in the comic book space for sure. Yeah, I, I would recommend it as well. This is not this is not just like favorite superhero film material. This is like top ten favorite films of all time material and probably high on that list. It is absurdly good. If it's been a long time since you've seen it, because again, looking at box office numbers, odds are most of you have. Um, go back and give it a rewatch. Even if it's not an IMAX, even if it's not in a theater, like you should just sit down and watch The Dark Knight again because in a lot of ways, like it feels especially in the age of superhero films at, at the end of the first wave of 10 years of Marvel films that we've seen now, this one still holds up and it feels timeless in a way that the others just don't. It's not like rewatching a Marvel movie. This is entirely its own thing. It is in the league all its own. Dark Knight is incredible. Yeah. And and I just forgot one quick thing. Uh, The sound in IMAX is amazing. You go for the screen, but you forget the sound is, is unbelievable as well. And that changes the experience entirely as well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, If you, if you have the ability, uh, I would encourage you to go see this in an IMAX theater. If it ever comes around to your theater, if there's ever a late night screening of the dark night, one night only your local IMAX joint, go see it. Preferably real IMAX if you can swing it, but even if it's like Limax, like the fake not 80 foot screen IMAX, go see it anyway. Like it, it, it holds up so good and it pops so well on that screen, which is exactly where it was designed to be seen. And that's The Dark Knight. Man, uh, that might be one of our better passionate reviews about films we love. <laughs> Normally we're pretty clumsy on them. I think we did a pretty good job, if I do say so myself. Andy, what are we watching next week? So we're going to be taking a look at The Old Guard, which is a Netflix action movie starring Charlize Theron, which came out last week. Um, so we decided we wanted to see The Dark Knight. <laughs> That's why we moved it up. But we'll be, we will be catching up this week, The Old Guard. And then we're also going to do uh, a movie night with Unforgiven, which is the old, uh, not old, 1993 Clint Eastwood postmodern Western classic, uh, which is going to be on HBO Max. So we're going to be reviewing that as well. Yes, uh, I'm not excited about the old card. <laughs> Me neither. To, honestly, I've heard kind of good things. I I know it's a Netflix movie, but I've seen a couple like snippets on Twitter and a couple other things people have pointed out. So I think I think there are some salvageable moments. I don't think it's trash. I think it's probably okay. <laughs> so we'll give it a shot. I you know I need to I need to set my set my reservations aside and just go watch it. I heard Charlie Saren's good in it. So there's that. Uh, and Unforgiven supposedly is real good. I think we talked about it last week because we pushed it to this week. Um, I heard about that movie first in film school when we talked about Westerns and people talked about like the end of the Western as a genre. And since then, it's kind of seen a bit of a resurgence, especially if you consider superhero films, the modern Westerns. But this one came up a lot. Unforgiven was a movie people talked about and they said, if you want to look at the end, like the, the, the death of the Western, you should watch <laughs> this death movie now. called Unforgiven. So yeah. I'm excited to see that. It's going to be good. We're going to hang out, watch it, have a couple of beers. It'll be great. So if you have the means, check out The Old Guard on Netflix and check out Unforgiven on HBO Max. You can watch along with us. And the next week, you can listen to the show and you can you can weigh in with your own thoughts and you can let us know what you think. That's right. I also, you, I also yeah. wanted to mention that uh, for any sports fans out there that the Michael jordan not jackson michael jordan documentary the last dance uh, which was on espn will now be on netflix starting this weekend uh, check that out if you're into that that's it's like a 10-part documentary they must have some funny distribution rights with that film because espn is owned by disney 
Yeah. So you'd think that would be going straight to Disney Plus, right? Mm-hmm. Or Hulu, which Disney also has majority sharehold in. So you would be going there. But somehow it's going to Netflix. I don't know. I guess the studio that produced it sold the original broadcast rights to Disney and then sold the streaming rights. And like, that's got to be the way that worked, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It must not be an ESPN original because if it was, I'm sure that's where it'd be. But if you enjoyed listening to the show, you can let us know on Facebook where we stream the episodes live every Tuesday, except for this week when we did it on Wednesday. But otherwise, Tuesday's usually when that happens. Tuesday afternoon, like 5 p.m. Central. That's that's when that's going on. So follow the page. You can keep up with us. You can check us out on Twitter or on Instagram, and we post full archives of our episodes on YouTube as well. Of course, the audio of Offscript is always available on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, so check us out there. And if you have the means, throw us a rating and review. Like two sentences, like five stars. One sentence and five stars. I'm fine mm-hmm. with that. One word and five stars. Just tell, just, just, you know, tell, tell us what you think of the show. And if you can do anything to support us, if you liked what you heard, just subscribe. Just subscribe to the show so you can get new episodes every single week. It is absolutely free and it would mean the world to us. And with that, from all of us at Offscript, I didn't tell you to go to the website, offscriptfilmreview.com. Email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. That's the show. This is the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. (laughs) Sorry, I'm spacing out. I'm Dr. Draper. (laughs) Thanks for listening.